Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It's great to be here on The Great Fun this morning. I'm Judith Peppard, and uh, yeah, wonderful to be here at 3RRR. I'm hosting the show, as you've heard, for Dylan. Pretty busy this morning on the grapevine. We're going to start with Dr. Monica Barrett from the University of New South Wales and our MIT. She'll speak to a statement released about a week ago now by VADA, which is the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association. And the statement called for a drug testing and public early warning system for Victoria, and the purpose of that would be to reduce harms related to novel psychoactive substances. And if you haven't heard of those before, she will tell us all about that. And, of course, this is in line with recommendations that have come from the coroner's court of Victoria about two and a half years ago and uh, take, seems, seems to move slowly in this area because it hasn't been introduced yet. And, of course, the idea is supported by a range of agencies across Victoria. Journalist and author Anthony Lowenstein will bring us up to date on the latest developments in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. And uh, today we're going to look at the most recent developments and, um, yeah, and how the world is responding I'm really excited to be joined in the Triple R studio. It's still exciting, I just need to say, to have people in the studio for me. You know, I'm still recovering in some ways, I suppose, from the COVID day. So it's always lovely when people come in. We'll be speaking with Gary Newman, and uh, he's the person who's coming in. He's the director and producer of the documentary, Listen Up, How to Capture a Prime Minister. And it takes us back to the dismissal of Gough Whitlam in 1975 and its aftermath. And in particular, the student protests at Monash University in 1976. And some of you may have been there when Malcolm Fraser, the unpopular prime minister who replaced Gough Whitlam, was forced to seek refuge in the bowels of a theatre while his minders desperately hatch an escape plan. And yes, it really happened. That's coming up. Really excited to find out you know, how Gary went about getting lots of great footage in the film and uh, in some of the interviews, amazing interviews that he managed to get. Triple R. And uh, my first guest today is um, Monica Barrett. And we're going to talk about a statement that was released by the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, VADA, which is the peak body representing publicly funded alcohol and drug services in Victoria. And the statement called on the Victorian government to implement a drug checking and public early warning system to reduce harms related to psychoactive substances, and they're commonly known as NPS. And uh, this was in line with four recommendations made by the coroner's court of Victoria back in April 2021. So Monica Barrett is one of the uh, authors who prepared the persons who prepared the statement, along with Isabel Volpe from the Social Equity Research Centre at RMIT. 
and the title of that statement is Drug Checking and Early Warning Systems, Knowing the Harms Can Prevent Harms. So welcome to Triple R, Monica. It's so good to have you here this morning. Thanks a lot, Judith. Great to be with you. So I think, you know, could you begin just by explaining what novel psychoactive substances are, or NPSs? Sure. So, you know, most people have a list of substances that they're aware of, prohibited drugs, um, MDMA, heroin, methamphetamine, ketamine, cannabis even. And so there's this traditional set that most people are aware of. And then there's a number of newer drugs uh, that have come out in the last couple of decades. Some of them are actually drugs that have been produced many decades ago and perhaps abandoned by pharmaceutical companies because they didn't really have a market for them. And what's happened in the last couple of decades is um, some of these drugs have been manufactured and passed off as traditional drugs. So the cases that the coroner's court in Victoria has um, has looked into, for example, back in 2021, there were five deaths that related to individuals who thought they were taking MDMA, commonly known as ecstasy, but actually what they were taking was a combination of new and unknown psychedelics and stimulants. Um, they were called 25C Envome and 4FA. And this combination were put into a capsule and sold as MDMA. No one really knows why or exactly who did that along the chain of unregulated supply but that's what happened and unfortunately um, that is essentially why they died because those amounts were really high. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these um, synthetic novel substances are really more potent and because people don't know they're taking them then they, they have no idea about dosage. There's just much more risk associated with taking a completely unknown substance, as you can imagine. Yes, and I mean, all this comes back to the fact that certain drugs are designated as illegal. And other drugs designated as legal. And mm. there's not really, uh, this isn't necessarily related to the harm that certain drugs would cause. So this Correct. whole illegal drug market is generating these particular problems. And this, I guess, is the newest one. That would be my argument, that ultimately it is our um, global prohibition um, based on the UN statements and many countries that continue to abide by those statements yes. that essentially caused this problem. Having said that, you know, if we're not in a position to overhaul prohibition today, then, and <laughs> yes. I'll suggest that we're not, then, um, you know, drug checking services are a bit like a stopgap. They're a service that can try to better manage the harms that arise principally from unregulated supply whilst not actually providing regulated supply, which is what would solve those issues. Instead, we're able to invite people, anybody, so any citizen, to come in, um, submit a substance that they are considering taking. It can be tested on site. We can find out what's in it and how strong it is. And then that person engages in an intervention. And that's another important point. They don't just get the results and get turfed out. They, they get that discussed with a health professional. And that can be five, ten-minute discussion. And what we know from the um, studies of drug checking services around, um, there's obviously one in Canberra now, but also internationally, is that a lot of people, the majority of people that use those services, don't otherwise talk to health professionals about the drug use. So this is a real opportunity that we don't often get to engage with people who may not currently have dependence issues and may not currently have really problematic drug use, but it gives them some 
Um, and it gives them some connection just in case that's the sort of thing that might develop for them. It connects them into services and systems. So, you know, it's not just about the unregulated supply issues. It's also about engaging people in that harm reduction intervention too. Yes, and something you've just said I think is quite significant. So, in fact, you might have someone who's just deciding to try this drug for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And there's also the idea that, you know, drug use, dependence is the only problem associated with drug use yeah when in fact many people yeah yeah so would you just say more about that please sure so and i think a lot of the concern or the visibility of drug use in society is around say folks that are using drugs daily multiple times daily and maybe that's you know, the centre of their life at that time. Uh, And obviously we do need to provide as much options for those people, you know, make sure that treatment is well-funded, make sure that harm reduction services are well-funded. But we also know uh, that the majority of use of prohibited substances doesn't fall into those categories. Most people are more occasional uh, substance users. So, uh, you know, reaching that much larger group, which may not have... As, as stronger problems, but they can obviously still come to great harm. And having provided evidence for the Coroner's Court of Victoria and also in New South Wales around these kinds of deaths that we're talking about here, this tends not to be um, people who are dependent. It tends to be younger people who maybe are taking drugs semi-regularly, maybe you know um, weekly or fortnightly or monthly, but they're not the sorts of folks that are ending up in treatment and, and neither would they want to be there, but somehow they've ended up severely harmed and or deceased. So, you know, trying to reach that group with messages that actually are credible for them is something that drug checking services are particularly good at doing. I mean, anyone could have this experience of taking one of these drugs you know, across the board. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so we don't have such a facility here in Victoria. We do not. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely the case. And, yeah, essentially what would be ideal would be a sort of a system, and we we mentioned this in the statement uh, that people can access on the VADA website, that's V-A-A-D-A. Basically the statement goes through an inclusive model. We don't say, you know, this is the exact model we must have, and I think once we get to the point politically where we can start talking about you know, yes, Victoria wants to have a drug checking service, let's let's look at the kinds of models. We've essentially put um, principles, so it needs to be, you know, harm reduction focused, inclusive and accessible, accurate, comprehensive and rapid in terms of the actual testing, the, the chemistry side of it. But it also needs to be safe and anonymous. Uh, we've found from just so much research here that almost all potential service users say that they would be concerned if where they didn't know that police would support this. Uh, so, you know, police need to play a, a supportive role by not patrolling the surrounding areas of service. So that could potentially mean um, legislation not dissimilar to that that is required in Richmond for the supervised injecting centre, which ensures that those who are on site with substances that they're going to inject on site um, 
legislatively that they cannot be arrested doing that. Um, it may be that we require that level, or some other countries in the world don't have legislation, but they just have an understanding, a, a, an informal agreement with uh, law enforcement that it's in the best interest of everyone, that they don't patrol that site. So, so those are the sorts of considerations that yes. we need to go through. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and you mentioned the ACT has such a room. Um, and yes. yeah, and uh, is that the only jurisdiction in Australia? They are the only jurisdiction in Australia that currently have a drug checking service. However, Queensland will begin to have a drug checking service, assuming everything goes to plan at the beginning of next year. And um, they put out a tender recently, having announced in February that the Queensland government would support a drug checking service being set up. So the tender is now being d decided upon and then the provider will begin next year. So there will be two drug checking services. Obviously that's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of reaching as many people who use drugs as we can. But it's also worth reminding, I guess, or mentioning, as you said in the start, this is a drug checking and early warning system. So even though you would never expect to reach a huge number of people through a small drug checking service, especially if there's only one of them, what you are able to do is amplify the information you receive through public drug alerts. And that's something that, that needs to go hand in hand with that drug checking service because the data itself can be pushed out to many more people than the service user. So it will provide information to lots of people if it's set up. Essentially, be, yes, absolutely. Mm, because mm, you so will be getting on the ground information about what's out there. So even just this morning when I turned on my email, I'm, I get the alerts from CanTest, that's the Canberra Drug Testing Service. They've just put out an alert over the weekend saying that there was mescaline found in a quote-unquote Ritalin sample. So someone's taken in something they thought was Ritalin, and I don't know, obviously that wasn't pharmaceutically produced Ritalin. This is one of the other issues. We've got counterfeit benzodiazepines, counterfeit opioid tablets, and here we have seemingly an unusual uh, ingredient, mescaline being a psychedelic. Yes found in, in cactus, so it's yeah. a very strange one. But um, so, so, you know, a white powder sample expected to contain Ritalin was actually found to contain uh, mescaline. So there's an example of that information once it's obtained, and probably it was obtained either Thursday or Friday of last week, because that's when they're open at CanTest, then they're able to push that out straight away with, uh, with an alert to let people know yeah. Um, and that was but it's tricky. What what does what does someone would do with that information? I mean, they might have something that they think is Ritalin at home, but how do they know, you know, that this is the one that they don't? So it it isn't foolproof to have these alerts. It's a warning, but it, it pretty much also just tells everybody this market is variable. Do not trust what is in something that is sold to you, even if you trust your dealer or your friend, they may not know what is in it. And I think those messages, it, it's a credible way of delivering those messages to the public. Yes, and now just coming back to what you said about Ritalin, I mean, presumably people that have it at home have had, had it prescribed, but I think what you've yes. just described is it, you know, it's a could be available on the street as well and it could have something well in this case as well. I mean it's such a good example you open your email and there's the information oh. they found it in Canberra yeah. but it's come to Victoria and people can be informed here so it seems like
like, you know, there's a lot of benefits to such a project. We absolutely feel so, and we've managed to find 77 other organisations in Victoria to sign, and we imagine we'll get more signatories um, over the coming months. Really, just to say, look, the Victorian coroner has recommended this four times. We don't really want to keep hearing that recommendation because every time we hear it, it means another person has passed away in similar circumstances in a way where we think it could potentially be prevented by having such a service. So we, we do hope that, you know, um, we're able to collaborate with um, our counterparts at the Department of Health and um, et cetera in government to bring this about. Um, it, it's not a costly intervention. Uh, the Queensland tender, for example, had a, I think it was a maximum amount tender of 500000 for 12 months of service, $500,000. It, it, it's yes. not something where we're asking for many millions of dollars. We understand yep. that, you know, governments are cash-strapped at the moment. Having said that, you know, what can we prevent here? Think of all of the ambulance call-outs, the cost of hospitalisations and, of course, the cost of death more broadly just in terms of the bereavement yes. that we go through yes. and the so, concern so that ripples painful. out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So and we've met many bereaved parents or mm. even in the case of our launch last Monday, um, Debbie Warner, who was there talking on behalf of parents, uh, her son is still alive but actually was in the ICU for four days and it's been a really traumatic experience for the whole family ever since. So... You know, it's not just those who die that are affected, and we tend to forget about those who survive. Yes. Um, they're also affected in an ongoing way. And their families. I mean, yeah. I was interested to see the range of organisations that have signed mm. this statement. Like, you know, just can you tell us what some of those organisations are? Sure. So, so we've focused here on community and health organisations. I think we could go broader maybe with the next push, but... For example, we've got the um, uh, societies that represent pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical society and the um, general practitioners, Royal Society of General Practitioners. We've also got a number of unions on the list, so the Health and Community Services Union, um, the Australian Services Union, um, but also local community services like Bendigo Community Services, Banyul Community Health, Ballarat Community Health, so a number of different community health services across Victoria, not just in the CBD, but, but regionally as well. There's also a number of research organisations which, um, um, yeah, I guess going to the actual research behind this as peer organisations. Harm Reduction Victoria is an incredibly important partner. Um, so organisations that represent people who use drugs are, are definitely here as well. Yes, and uh, I mean, uh, the range, as I said, I, was, I mean, you have the uh, Jesuit organisation as well. Yeah, in that Jesuit list. Social Services. And, yes. um, so Mary's House of Welcome and Odyssey House Victoria. Yeah, so um, I think it is a large range and I think that demonstrates what's changed in the past few years about this space, whereas I think it used to be a bit more of a fringe ask these days, really across the board, even with almost all of the media that I've been doing, everyone's sort of just questioning, why hasn't this happened? Yes. Um, and I can't really give the answer to that. I <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I just want yeah. to come back to the, I mean, the organisations you've talked about mm. and including the coroner's, 
record as well. Yes. yes. Are organizations that actually see, no doubt, on a daily basis or regularly the harms that are done uh, by not having such a a testing center, drug testing center. Can you tell me what is the evidence? You say, you know, they're around the world. They exist around the world. Uh One in in Australia and one coming up soon to be introduced in Queensland. But since they've been going for a while internationally, what kind of evidence do you have? I mean, you've talked about very clearly about the benefits uh, and what, what are the evidence, what's the evidence that they are effective in, in doing what we say they, they'll do? Yeah, sure. So I guess there's different ways of considering how a drug checking service would be effective and how it might reduce harm. And one of the ways is thinking about how the individual service users might change their behaviour after accessing a drug checking service. So there's been a number of studies around that and it seems to relate very much, as you would expect, to the results themselves. So if someone received results that the drug was different to expected, then most people report. Either they report what they intend to do, which is obviously not as... um, uh, as easy to measure as actually discarding the drugs, but um, most people go on not to consume the substance. Either they discard it or they say they won't consume it. Uh, and when it comes to drugs being what they were expected to be, the important aspect there is that if people are told the drugs are stronger than expected, then um, around half or slightly more in some surveys report that they will take a smaller dose than usual. And that's incredibly important. One of the the very recent coroner's report from Victoria was actually related to a particularly high dose MDMA pill that someone took and if they had known that it was high dose, it was argued that they would have taken less and could potentially have survived. Uh, So even going beyond that, of course, though, there are many other ways in which people can change their behaviour upon the intervention. Even just standard stuff like lowering polydrug use, becoming aware of uh, problematic combinations through that intervention that they have with the health um, with the health-related intervention. So it's not just about whether they do or do not take the substance. So there's that level at that micro level, and then there's the macro level of the actual alerts going out. So there's been a couple of, and they're really, it's really hard to measure that. There's been a couple of situations that go to its effectiveness. And one was in the Netherlands where there was a a pill identified to contain PMMA, which can be fatal if taken in the doses that it was in, this pill that was supposed to be MDMA. This was discovered by a Dutch drugging service at the time and they decided to put out what they call a red alert. And that goes out very widely across the whole of the Netherlands Unfortunately, the UK had the same pill. They did not have the same early warning system and there were a number of deaths related to this pill being taken in the UK and there were zero deaths in the Netherlands. While we can't, you know, that supports what we're saying, it's not perfect and it's actually quite hard to conduct, for example, a full randomised control trial with a control group and all of these sorts of things yes, and, and with in an the real world. 
illegal substance as well. But it is a natural experiment, though, in a sense. I mean, you know, where you found you have two countries, one who has the service and one doesn't. And as you say, you know, you have to be careful about drawing conclusions. It does give a sense. I mean, I'm thinking way back to when the clean needle programs, needle exchange programs were introduced here in Australia. Mm -hmm. And the difference between the countries and places that didn't have them and Australia was absolutely massive. It made a huge difference. Incredible, yeah. And we, you know, still would look back on that decision and say that was absolutely the right thing to support harm reduction at that time, given what happened in other countries in terms of HIV and other bloodborne virus transmission. And this is, yeah, this is a similar idea. We're talking about harm reduction. We're saying, you know, we accept some people will continue to use drugs, and if they do, these services can help them to stay alive and to um, to come to less harm. So what kind of response have you had to your statement? Have you heard anything from the government, for example? Or, I mean, you have mentioned that, you know, both that it's been positive and you feel like the mood has changed now. The public is now ready for something like this. What kind of, uh, you know, are there other responses you've had and anything from the government? We um, haven't had a direct response, but one of the... um, One of the journalists, I think, putting together a story late last week did get an email response from the Department of Health. And the quote is, there are no current plans for, uh, quote-unquote, pill testing, which is essentially drug checking, but um, unfortunately doesn't, doesn't take into account that this is all kinds of drugs, not just ecstasy or pills. But there are no current plans uh, in Victoria. And they then go on to talk about the investment that they've made in harm reduction and in other alcohol and drug services, which, of course, is commendable, but it isn't dealing with this issue. So at this point, there hasn't been any change. But look, um, we'll keep trying. Yes, and and I guess one of of the successes indeed has been the... um of uh, the injecting service that's offered and uh, that, yes, that's absolutely. Been, been very well evaluated. I mean, carefully evaluated, but that's what I mean by well, and, uh, and positive results is shown. And now there is a move to have a similar program in the CBD in the city, which I think that's at this right. stage we don't have um, any... Uh, any uh, idea about whether that's going to go ahead or not, but people have been working very hard. So, yeah, so much still to Certainly be done. Have been. Yeah. Yeah. And just because some good things have happened doesn't mean that we shouldn't do more good things. You know, I feel like it's it's sort of saying, look, we've we've done these things. Look at us. We've done these things. I say, yes, those things are great, but there's more that can be done. And let's think a little bit broadly about. You know, for example, how much money is spent by police in Victoria using sniffer dogs to patrol the lines of a festival to try and determine who does and does not have drugs? We know that those methods have negative consequences. People panic, consume their substances. We know that, you know, it's really not that effective. We could take that money and we could do a number of things with it in harm reduction. So I think crying poor on one side of the ledger We've got to be a bit creative about how we might get some more money into harm reduction. Yes. Well, Monica Barrett, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Triple R. And uh, it's thank really you so be- much, Judith. Really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, let, let's uh, watch this space, I guess, and uh, see what happens next. Yeah. I look forward to providing you with some more information about this later. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. Thanks, Monica, and have a great day.
You too. Bye. Bye. Yeah, and that was Dr. Monica Barrett, a social scientist at the Drug Policy Modelling Program at the University of New South Wales and the Vice Chancellor's Senior Research Fellow at RMIT in Melbourne. And do check out her profile to find out more about the great research she does. Just to get you started, she's examined the social and public health implications of digital technologies for people who use illicit and emerging psychoactive drugs. Her research topics include the um, online drug markets and crypto markets and policy responses to novel psychoactive substances and their evolution. So, look, lots to learn, lots to find out. Check out her website. And my next guest this morning is Anthony Lowenstein. He's an Australian-German independent freelance investigative journalist, author, and filmmaker. And he was based in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. And he's written extensively about the Middle East. And Anthony spoke with Dylan on the grapevine on October 16th. And I do encourage you to listen back if you missed it. It was a comprehensive conversation covering many aspects of the conflict between Hamas and Israel and also the directions the conflict conflict might take. Now, Anthony has been kind enough to join us again to bring us up to date on developments over the past two weeks. So, Anthony, thank you so much for coming out of Triple R this morning. Oh, thanks for having me back on. Always love Triple R, so happy to be here. Well, we love having you, that's for sure. Now, when you spoke to Dylan two weeks ago, Israel had already cut off electricity and fuel and water to the Gaza Strip in response to, you know, I have to say, the horrific attack of Hamas on Israeli Mm. citizens and was preparing for a ground attack and going into Gaza, and that's now begun. But can you just tell us more about the developments over the past two weeks? Well, everything is bad is the short answer. Look, since we spoke a few weeks ago, and if people didn't hear that, I mean, the broad... I guess overview, as you rightly say, that on October 7, there was an absolutely horrific Hamas attack, utterly indefensible, brutal, ugly, illegal, completely counterproductive, killed at least 1,400 Israelis, many of whom were civilians. We don't even know how many hostages are exactly now in Gaza held by Hamas. It's probably around 220. The figure seems to change every day or so, but around 120, many of whom are civilians, children, women... And since then, so roughly, I guess, three weeks or so, there has been a relentless, utterly brutal and illegal bombardment of Gaza by Israel. And people will have seen these images on TV, online, wherever they get their information. And the death toll is skyrocketing. I mean, it's in you know, close to 10,000. It's massive and brutal. And really, in the last few days, Israel has sent some ground troops into Gaza, although I don't think it's a full ground invasion. And what's sort of so dispiriting about so much of this, apart from the obvious devastation, loss of life, is the fact that, and I read this from various sources, both um, journalists that I respect, but also people that I'm speaking to, there actually is no plan here. Now, when I say no plan, what I mean is there is, on one level, understandable anger within Israel about what happened on October 7. That anger is understandable. I think if any country was in a similar situation, they might feel similarly. However... A very important, however, what is the plan here of what Israel, with much, I might say, the entire Western world supporting Israel, including Australia and the US, of course, what is the plan here for the following day? Following day meaning 
if it's even possible to overthrow Hamas militarily, which is maybe conceivable, what happens to those 2.3 million Palestinians, half of whom are under 18? Who runs the area? Who controls their lives? Who provides health, education and various other aspects of daily life? There is no plan here. And we have at the moment the most far-right fascist Israeli government in its history who regularly, almost daily, are issuing literally genocidal calls for the levelling of Gaza, the destruction of Gaza, the removal of Palestinians from Gaza to Egypt, which is the, one of its neighbouring countries. We're in a really, really dark place. And what's so utterly outrageous is when there was a UN vote around this a few days ago, the vast majority of the world voted for uh, a sensible policy of some kind of cessation of hostilities or uh, ceasefire, whereas Australia did not. They abstained, which is sort of the, the refuge of the, of the utterly um, gutless, where they obviously couldn't really make a decision and they didn't want to uh, totally oppose it, but they also didn't want to totally support it, so they chose to abstain. And the result of that is that there is now real fears of a potential regional war, meaning you bring in other players, Iran, Lebanon, Hezbollah, which is really the nightmare scenario, absolutely nightmare scenario. Yes, I wanted to come to that in a moment, but first I'm understanding that this conflict has now spread to the West Bank. Uh, mm. from the extreme uh, settlers, I guess, that are moving in and people have been, Palestinians have been killed there as well. Look, even before October 7, listeners need to remember that, as I said, it's the most far-right government in Israeli history and many of them in that government are far-right, fanatical sort of settlers who believe that Palestinians have no right to live in that area. And the result of that practically, even before October 7, has been life for the roughly 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank intolerable, kicking them off their land, severing their access to water and resources. I mean, even in the last month, before October 7, a number of Palestinian villages have removed themselves and had to leave the areas in which they've been for generations because settler violence and Israeli military backing of those settlers has made their life utterly intolerable. I mean, that's the kind of context that I think a lot of people in the West have really turned a blind eye to for years. Sure, now and then you read stories about far-right fanatics in the West Bank and, oh, isn't that a shame and there's a few bad apples and if only the Western world sort of took a stand and did something about it. But the fact is the writing has been on the wall. The writing's on the wall for years and yet because so much of the West is blindly supportive of Israel, this is where we're at now where there is, as you say, the, the real possibility within the West Bank of a massive escalation there between Palestinians and Israeli military, which would be catastrophic. Yes. And look, I I know that communication was cut off for a while in Gaza. I'm wondering, are you still in touch with people in Gaza? Well, apparently, I've had contact with people for a couple of days. I've been reading just this morning that the U.S., not Israel, the U.S., put pressure on Israel in the last day or so to restore communication. I mean, it's almost like one level you kind of want to laugh how grim that is that when the u.s is backing israel 110 percent let's not frame america as some kind of liberating savior here and yet even they apparently uh the Biden administration have been concerned with that severing of communication so my understanding is that slowly coming back on but i haven't actually seen evidence of that i have not personally had contact with 
my friends and colleagues in Gaza for a couple of days. I will reach out to them today. Yes. Um, but even the people who can, just to be clear, they um, a lot of them are now displaced. I mean, at least one third of the population have no home. They have nowhere to go. They are living in makeshift refugee camps, many of which are being targeted by Israel. There's no secure way to get water, electricity. There's no secure way to, to you know, charge your phone, for example, just basic things like that. Yes. So some people who I can't connect with, they may be alive, but they can't necessarily get access to a phone charger. Or you know, one friend of mine said that they're often looking around for people who have solar energy, you know, solar chargers to be yes. able to charge oh, their phone. Yeah. So pretty it's, important. It's just very yes. important at this sort of time. And yet, you know, it, it, it's just, it's, it's really grim. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I'm interested in how people within Israel are responding to what Israel is doing in Gaza. Do you have any sense of that? I do. Look, it's it's mixed is the short answer. There are definitely a sizable proportion of the population that are unbelievably angry since October 7, who are calling for Israel and its military to level Gaza. I mean, just genocidal calls of elimination. That's coming out from huge numbers of politicians and media and the public. I'm not saying all, but a sizable proportion are. There is a small proportion of more leftist protesters who for a long time before October 7 have been calling for rationality, for calm, for negotiation, for a, for a reduction of tension. This is, again, before October 7. A lot of the families of kidnapped people within Israel, even in the last few days after meeting Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, have clearly said after that meeting went nowhere, Netanyahu was, was belligerent, as he always is, and they said, we want all Palestinian prisoners to be released, at which there are thousands and thousands, many of whom they're utterly illegally, without any justification, if Hamas would release our hostages from captivity. So and Israel will not do that, frankly, although my view, they should. I mean, I'm wondering so, if, if Israel, I'm sorry, if Hamas did release all the hostages tomorrow, what are the chances that hostilities would end in Gaza? Zero. <laughs> Zero. Because, firstly, Hamas won't do that. Secondly, I mean, there is apparently behind-the-scenes negotiations, often with Qatar, which is a, plays a very, very curious role in this whole conflict, where, on the one hand, they house the biggest US military base in the region. They are colleagues unofficially with Israel, and they also support Hamas. So they play a very, very curious it's game. It's a very confusing are, place. I mean, just a, the, yeah, yeah. the alliances. Yeah. The alliances are really, really murky. And Qatar is a, has been trying for years to kind of play both sides of the fence. They are apparently negotiating an attempt to try to release many of the hostages. But as they have said, as even Saudi Arabia has said in the last few days, if Israel sends in ground troops, which they now have, then that massively complicates the situation to try to negotiate or release prisoners. So even if all the hostages were released tomorrow, which they won't be, then Israel's, I think, determination to crush Hamas militarily will not change. And I fear that the Israeli military strategy is willing to sacrifice many, if not most, of those hostages to destroy, so they believe they can do, Hamas militarily. I mean, the problem at the moment, really, apart from all the obvious signs, is there's no one with serious power to de-escalate here. There's no incentive 
to de-escalate. It may seem crazy to us here or in many places around the world that there is no desire to de-escalate. But as I've said for years, a lot of my work in Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere, there are a lot of, and, and Palestine for that matter, there are lots and lots of people in these various conflicts that benefit from chaos. Yes. They benefit from escalation, financially or ideologically. I, I mean, mean yes. that's exactly where we're at now. Mm. And, and I, w- I mean, I was going to come to that with Netanyahu in particular, who seems to thrive on conflict. And I have read that, that many Israelis, in fact, are not happy with Netanyahu politically and with some of the things he's been doing. I mean, obviously they feel that he's responsible in part for what's, for that attack, but also that he's not providing support. I mean, you, imagine, you mentioned people who met with him. He's, he only supplies, supplies support to those communities that are supportive of him, you know, communities that have lost houses or experienced damage. Yeah. And the other thing I'm hearing is that for some years there, or there had been someone not, who negotiated around hostages. But that position has been vacant now for about um, you know, in seven or eight months, eight or nine months, and people mm. in Israel are upset about that too. So it seems to me, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but Netanyahu's political fortunes seem to be tied up somewhat to this war because people won't change the administration, even if they're not happy with it during a war situation. However, I'm sure you know more than I do on this one, Anthony. Well, yes, look, it's unlikely he'll fall from power today or tomorrow, but certainly since October 7, and even frankly before, there was growing not just dissatisfaction, but open contempt by a number of Israeli Jews towards him. And in fact, since October 7, the horrific Hamas attack, pretty much every poll shows that Netanyahu is fundamentally unpopular, distrusted and should resign, but of course he won't. Even in the last 24 hours, this shows how delusional he is. He put out a tweet, which he then deleted and apologised for, which he never really does, essentially blaming everybody else but him for the catastrophe in the last few weeks on October 7. I mean, and you see, at the same time, when people talk about him as being delusional, the context is vital here. Who do you think has been supporting him for years in that position? the US, much of the West, Australia. This is the reality. He didn't suddenly come out of nowhere on October 7 and become a pyromaniac. This is who he is. And yet his cabinet, he is seen as a moderate within that cabinet. He is not the most extreme in that cabinet. There are people in that cabinet currently in the last sort of 10, 11 months or so who openly advocate ethnic cleansing. They talk about it, they praise it, they have expressed it in the last few weeks, even... And they've been saying that for months and years. So this Look, is really, really concerning about uh, any possibility of this war coming to an end soon. And, and you mentioned earlier about the, es- the possible escalation of the war and uh, other countries becoming involved. I'm curious about how you see that at the moment. I noticed that Les- uh, Lebanon's Hezbollah, who would be a key player, obviously, in broadening the conflict? But but the leader Nasrallah, I think, has been a bit slow to make it to, to make a decision to more actively get involved. Is, are you seeing that? Look, I think what Hezbollah is doing, and of course they're a key ally of Israel, over Iran, is they are they've been testing 
the northern border between Lebanon and Israel to see how ready Israel would be. I mean, the idea potentially that Israel would be fighting a war on its southern front, which is Gaza, and a northern front, which is with Lebanon, is why the U.S. has been so active in this and sending huge amounts of reinforcements, because they fear a regional war. And it's arguable whether Israel could handle two fronts without U.S. backing. That's when we start getting to more apocalyptic scenarios where... Iran potentially gets involved, or Hezbollah. I think at the moment it's very unclear whether Hezbollah seriously wants to get involved in that war, which therefore means whether Iran does, because if that would happen, as Israel has said for years, long before October 7, we will level Lebanon. We will literally destroy Beirut, and I have no doubt they would do so. This, like These are the stakes we're talking about here. They could not be higher. So I think at the moment it's unclear whether even if there's a sense from Iran and Hezbollah that Hamas is on the point of defeat, which is not the case today, but fast forward a few weeks, it may be. I do not know, and no one knows at this stage, whether Hezbollah will get seriously involved almost to try to save Hamas, or, or because I think they realise that militarily a war between Israel and Lebanon or Hezbollah would be utterly it would make the current Hamas-Israel war seem like kindergarten, truly. It would be on a whole different kind of scale. So, look, I'm very much hoping that that escalation doesn't happen. Uh, I mean, you know, at the moment, I think there's a real sense in much of the Arab Muslim world that, and it's important to say this, that so many of the Arab countries in the last years have sold out not just their own people, but the Palestinians, by befriending Israel. Like, this is where the Arab world is currently in. Palestinians, I'm not talking about the Palestinian leadership of Palestinian people, have been largely for years utterly abandoned by much of the Arab elites. Abandoned. I talk about this in my recent book, The Palestine Laboratory, where I go into detail about why UAE, uh, Morocco... Saudi and many others in the last years wanted to befriend Israel wasn't because they particularly liked Israel overall, because they're desperate to get, for example, the most sophisticated surveillance technology that Israel provides and tests on Palestinians first. They want to get that for their own country and to protect themselves because they fear a repeat of the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring, which has been utterly crushed, to be sure, in the last 15 years, was really profoundly disturbing for much of the Arab elites because they were petrified of their own people. Yes, petrified I of their own people rising up against them, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a big, themselves. huge moment. And, uh, you know, I think Tunisia is the only country that really managed to get a real change. But no longer. I mean, Tunisia now changed? is back to one person dictatorship. Yeah, Tunisia oh. sadly is now, is now back to one man dictatorship, tragically, oh, this yeah. year. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. the Arab Spring and on that level did not succeed, but what it did do is show what was possible. Right. That is, and that is a really kind of electric feeling. So it's why so many Arab states have befriended Israel because they almost were desperate for all that surveillance and repressive tech, which they have now got, to surveil their own people and try to monitor anyone who may rise up against them. What they're finding now, though, surprise, surprise, is that after a massive attack and Israel is now bombarding Gaza, so much of the Arab street is fundamentally opposed to Israel and what it's doing. No kidding. And therefore they're trying to scramble to kind of show that they support the Palestinian people. Arab people are aware of what's going on. They know. 
They know that their Arab leaders have failed them, they've failed the Palestinian people for years. They know that. And at some point, I don't know when that's going to happen, next week, next month, five years, 10 years, 20 years, a lot of those countries will rise up successfully against those dictators. We don't know when that'll happen. It is inevitable. There, will be, there will be another spring, you think? There will. It's yeah. inevitable at some point. Yeah. yeah. Just going back to Lebanon, because, of course, Israel attacked Lebanon in, in 2006. And, and just in the last, in which I'm sure, you know, deep in the memory, but uh, just in the last few years, they've had the explosion at the port and the, you know, financial crisis and the government is totally dysfunctional. Um, it seems the last thing the people of Lebanon would want is, is a war. I think that's undeniably true. And as you rightly say, Lebanon is on its knees. I mean, in the last, I think, year or so, I think it was the World Bank or someone else, correct me if I'm wrong, but people can Google this, but essentially said that the Lebanese economy is one of the worst cases in the last 100 years anywhere in the world. It is literally at the point, not, not, not just the point of collapse, it has collapsed. And, no, I mean, the vast majority of Lebanese people have nothing to do with Hezbollah, nothing to do with the war, don't like what Israel's doing, to be sure, but have no interest in uh, some kind of huge war with Israel because they're the ones who are going to be suffering when Beirut or other cities are bombed and levelled. It's just inconceivable that that would happen. I mean, Lebanon really, frankly, never got over its civil war that ended decades ago and the country has remained in some ways economically dysfunctional for decades, decades and decades. Well, so, yeah, Anthony, I'm, I'm, we're just going to run out of time, unfortunately, but I just wanted to say, you know, we wake up every morning hoping that by some miracle this war has ended. Uh, at the moment, as you've described, this certainly doesn't look likely. Do you see any no. hope? Do you see anything? that, you know, anyone can do. Yeah. Well, look, in the, in the short, short term, the war won't end. But I think what is where hope needs to happen is there needs to be massive, and is happening, growing international pressure and individuals, including here in Australia, can put pressure on our politicians, your local member, whichever party they're from, to demand that Australia and other states call for a ceasefire. Obviously, the US is the major player here for obvious reasons. There is growing pressure within the U.S. public, not so much in the political elites, in the public for a ceasefire, some kind of cessation of hostilities, at least something for people of Gaza to breathe, to be able to get fresh water and health care and all the things that they need. But in you know, the longer term, and I discuss this in my book, the, you know, the longer term question really is that there needs to be a fundamental rethink of how Israelis and Palestinians get on about how that relationship works. So Israel and its supporters in the West, sadly, and I'm Jewish myself, but many, many Jewish people in Australia have spent decades and decades and decades not just blindly supporting Israel, but turning a blind eye and supporting the worst aspects of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. That needs to change. And it is slowly but surely happening with growing numbers of young Jews here in the U.S., I mean, just a few days ago, there were hundreds and hundreds of Jews marching through peacefully through Grand Central Station in New York. Last week, there were hundreds and hundreds of Jews, including rabbis, at the Congress in the U.S. peacefully demanding a ceasefire. They are a minority, to be sure, but they're a growing and loud minority who are saying, not in my name, do not misuse 
our name as Jews, and I feel exactly the same way. Do not misuse, misuse our name as Jews to suggest that all Jews support blind and discriminate bombing and destruction of Palestine. We don't. That, to me, is some hope. And, of course, also, let's be clear, there are huge amounts of Palestinians, Arab voices, who are being heard increasingly. I was at a, a rally yesterday here in Sydney where there were, I don't know what the number was, it felt like tens of thousands of people protesting, not just Palestinians, Arabs, Jews, many others, Melbourne as well, across the country. That public opinion is shifting. And the longer Israel's bombardment continues that public opinion is only going to increase. Yes, and I would have to say there were thousands out yesterday too here in Melbourne, and, uh, and one of the speakers in particular, and, and I'm sorry because I, I was quite distance away, so I couldn't see who was speaking, but mm. wel- welcomed the Jews who had attended. It was mostly mm. Palestinian people, but welcomed the Jews who had attended. So thank you for a, a positive note to end what is a really <coughs> difficult story, Anthony, and I mean, so painful to see what's been going on. So really appreciate your insights and your time this morning. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. And that was Anthony Lowenstein, independent freelance investigative journalist, author, and filmmaker who was based in East Jerusalem, East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020 and has written some fantastic books, uh, not just about the Middle East, but other areas as well. So, yeah, go to his website and see what he's been doing. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. In the studio with me, I have Gary Newman. And just before uh, we begin our chat, I just want to let you know that he's the director and producer of the documentary, How to Capture a Prime Minister. Now, the documentary looks back at the aftermath of the dismissal of Goth Whitlam and the student protest at Monash University in 1976, which saw the unpopular prime minister who replaced Goff Whitlam Malcolm Fraser, seeking refuge in the bowels of a theatre while his minders desperately hatch an escape plan. And that's from the the blurb about the the doco. So Gary's here on 3RRR right in the studio with me. Gary, welcome to 3RRR and great to have you here this morning. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's always lovely to see a face and, and have a chat, that's for sure. So, look, before, you know, we get into some of the detail about how you actually made this docker, which I think was pretty complex, actually, a pretty complex project, uh, can you just tell us, yeah, briefly, you know, what what the background, what the story is? Yeah, what the story is. Um, Well, you know, you did mention it was the aftermath of the Whitlam um, government dismissal. You know, for those people who don't know, it's like the, the most turbulent period in Australian political history. It was huge. It was huge. I mean, I was living in Japan at the time Mm -hmm. and I had some Australian friends and they tried really hard to explain what had happened. It just made no sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So look, I mean, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a great story um, because of that backdrop. Um, and I think it sort of it comes at it from a slightly different angle. Like there's a lot of stuff out there about the dismissal, and it never sort of interest never seems to kind of wane. But it, but you know it is a well um, sort of trodden topic. But we sort of come at it from a different angle and looked at the aftermath and and looked at that figure that that figure that was so despised, Malcolm Fraser, um, and and tried to get to the bottom. I, I wanted to get to the bottom of who this guy actually was. Yeah, and you know, I I have friends, colleagues, people who have never forgiven him. Yeah, 
Whereas then I have other people said, oh, well, he, you know, he did some good things on refugees and he did, you know, mm. he did, did do some good things. But for some people I know he was never rehabilitated. There was no way. No, no. Mm. And, you know, the, it's one of the reasons why I find him fascinating is because I'm of South African heritage, right? And so Malcolm Fraser actually played a really significant role in the yes, end of apartheid of in course, South Africa, right? Of course. So, but, but you know, I found this kind of version of Malcolm Fraser hard to reconcile with the villain that I learnt about in first-year politics class at university, <laughs> right? I'm like, you know, which, which one is it? Um, <laughs> yes. So that's one of the things that I wanted to try and explore because, you know, it's kind of like... You know, um, Malcolm Fraser going and trying to sort out apartheid in South Africa is a bit like Tony Abbott getting on a plane and going to save the Uyghurs in China. You know what I mean? Like it's which hasn't happened. Which hasn't happened. So you know, this we're talking about someone who is considered an arch conservative, yeah. Right, and um, so I, I wanted to. I was fascinated by this guy. Yeah, obviously. I mean, that that's incredible. So that was your motivation, obviously, for making the film. And you obviously believed it was an important story to tell. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so. Um, I'm really fascinated by political conflict, and I'm, but above all, I, I really think I'm really passionate about engaging people in politics because it, you know it, it is it's a hard thing to do, yes. but politics is important, and I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to engage people by telling them a really ripping yarn. You yeah, know? and it is. So what is that yarn? Well, the yarn is about um, the Prime Minister of Australia getting uh, stuck in a, in a basement room at a university, you know, um, besieged by thousands of protesters uh, with seemingly no way out. Uh, and, and right here in Melbourne. Right, right here in Melbourne. But, look, there's more to the story than that because, you know, the... the I, I went and found the people responsible and, and interviewed them. And one of the other things that I was exploring was uh, what happened. What, what's happened to the radicals of the 1970s? You know, yes. does yeah. the does the rage still burn, <laughs> yes. or you, you know, have they have they just kind of gone off and you know got yeah, themselves joined all, BHP or right. some mining company? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's a it's there's a lot of texture to this to this story and. I don't know. I've been at it for a long time, but I still love it. I love the story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously you have. I mean, because you have an interview with Malcolm Fraser, for example, and he died in 2015, I think. Yeah, yeah, he did. I think it, it has to be one of the last, if not the last, major interview that was done with Mr Fraser. Um, and, uh, look, it was a very difficult interview to get. I, I can imagine. Well done for getting it, I have to say. Thanks. But, but look, just let's come back. So... The, so the student active the mm. students were so angry yeah. around the dismissal of Goff, and from the film I've seen it's things like you know cuts to university Correct. funding, mm. trying to stop Medicare, you know all there were all kinds of grievances the students had. Correct. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, you know the the dismissal was 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 um, you know perhaps a predominant reason why he was so disliked, but. Almost equally so because of the cutbacks that were going on. You know, um, the Whitlam government had instituted, you know, uh, Medibank, which is the the precursor to Medicare. Um, And this was one of the things that the Fraser... Look, Fraser had actually kind of promised pretty much not to touch it. 
Um, but when he got into power, like he, he kind of did start winding it back to some degree. Um, so there was there was a lot of unrest around the fact that uh, Fraser was cutting back a lot of the, the kind of social welfare programs that made a difference to everyday people's lives. Um, so he was, you know... He was a real hate figure amongst the left. Now it is important to note that he, that, that you know, he, he, not everyone. He wasn't unpopular everywhere. It was in particular amongst, um, you know, the, the left side of politics. You know, student activists, unionists, uh, and the like. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's come to how you actually, I mean, when did you get the idea for this story? Because you've been working on it a long time. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky one. I I think what happened is my my father told me about the student radicals at Monash and and you know I'm pretty sure he mentioned them bailing out Malcolm Fraser and I was like you know I haven't heard about this I've got to find out because you know I would have been a student at the time at Deakin and when I when I arrived at university in the mid 90s you know with all of these stories of student radicalism in my head. I was a little bit disappointed by, you know, by, by what, uh, by the campus was that it, I Was it a bit at. tame? It was a little bit tame. It was a little bit tame. Um, and um, so, but when, you know, I heard about this and I was like, all right, I've got to find out about this. So I uh, dug up, I think I went into the state library and, you know, looked at old student magazines on microfilm and found... And that's time-consuming. Yeah, it's time-consuming. And I found the uh, issue of Lot's Wife, which is the Monash University student magazine. I, I found the issue from 1976 in the aftermath of, of what happened. I was like, all right, this is pretty cool. Found some more newspaper articles. But it wasn't until I went to um, Lindsay Tanner's book launch. Lindsay Tanner is a former... Uh, Labor government minister in the Rudd-Gillard era, went to his book launch and I mentioned uh, this incident to him. And um, I was like, you know, do you, do you remember this, uh, Lindsay? And he's like, yeah, I remember it. I was there. Um, so, <laughs> and, you know, and I am sure that some people listening to Triple R this morning would have been there. Yeah. I, just, somehow I just feel that. But, it, but anyway, yeah. yeah. So, so were you surprised? I was surprised. And then he, he kind of he, he agreed to be part of the project and gave me a list of names to go and chase up. And then I was off. I was away. Um, so and why a film? Well, I think I've just always wanted to make a documentary film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't think it would take me this long. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I've, I guess I just like documentaries. I think they're yeah. important. I mean, I've, I've made two radio ones, so I, mm. I know the love and the joy yeah. of such things. Okay, so I, so you spoke to Lindsay Tanner. Mm. And then you went. You had to go about getting. You know. I mean, you found some incredible footage of the event itself. Yeah, uh, I unearthed that from the, the the vaults of the ABC. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, it's because they, you know, they back then they shot uh, on film, so oh. um, and they had the unedited film rushes, unedited film rushes in their in their vaults. So there was a lot of kind of. You know, a lot of, a lot of. Well, there was more footage than I, I thought I would find, and enough to support, you know, a, a rich documentary. Yeah, and, and there was some even of Malcolm Fraser in the theatre. There was, yes. Yes, when he was giving that. Oh well, he was opening a yes. centre, wasn't he? He was. He was there to open the centre. Yeah, yeah. It's all. It's all there in colour. It's. Um, it it's quite something. <laughs> 
it sure was. Yeah. So, so you would have spent a fair bit of time, I imagine, sourcing that material. Did, did does the ABC charge to get that kind of footage? Yeah, they do. Uh, it's quite expensive. The less said about that, the better. I think. Okay, okay, okay. No, no, no. I'm just thinking that there could be people listening who also you want to do what you've done. Yeah. Look, I think I think that um, not the exact same. No. Look, I think that there are some. You know, this is a whole other topic, but I think there are some really problematic structural factors that inhibit the production of independent films yeah. and documentaries. I think that there are serious issues inherent uh, to government policy around this and, and the funding of them. Mm-hmm. And I think there are issues around copyright law and the licensing of archival material. And I think, yeah, that's huge. And that sounds like it would be a whole other conversation. It is, yeah. yeah that, we, it is. that we could yeah, invite yeah, you. Yeah. But look, it's, you know, it is, it is hard, but, uh, you know, it's... But you did it. I did it, yeah. Yeah, you got it. And um, and then I guess, you know, I was really interested in, in how you scripted it to, mm. to bring it all together. And I'm really curious about that process. Like, did you say, start out saying, these are the images I want? Uh, well, script, mm. these are the images I want and I'm going to go get them. Or did the script kind of emerge out of what you were able to find? Or was it a mixture? Well, look, a bit of a mixture, but actually what has been the most valuable for me is to have a really good editor on board. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, Natalie, if you're listening, uh, she's been fantastic. And, you know, I'm, I'm an inexperienced filmmaker, you know, so what was really important for me was to have, you know, someone who knew what they, was do- they were doing who could su- support and, me- and, and mentor me, actually. Yeah, what was Natalie's last name? Uh, I always find oh, to pronounce no. Okay, yeah. good. No, I, you know, because we, yeah, it's just good yeah. to know. I've, yeah. I, I'm going to get in so much trouble because I can never pronounce it. Always the pronunciation. So it wasn't you didn't know that it was the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as a radio presenter, this is something that, you know, always we try, oh. we do our best to, to get correct um, pronunciations. Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm so hopeless with this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, one okay, so you explained a bit of your lots of support from Natalie around the scripting and the writing and pulling it together. I was really intrigued by the way you used animation oh, yeah. to trace the movements of the people on the day of the protests, and honestly, I found that so helpful uh, to explain what you know. It was obviously a chaotic mm. uh, situation where. The students found out. I mean, the, the university didn't think the students would be around, mm. so it'd be perfectly okay for Malcolm to turn up. Yeah. And then the word got out, and and it seems it wasn't only Monash students, but those students from La Trobe who were much more radical, mm. apparently, according mm. to the, the doctor who turned up as well. Yeah. So you got, you know, really it looked like I uh, know a thousand, a, a lot, a mm. lot of students. Yeah. Look, the, it's 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 hard to know exactly how many were there and you know when it comes to protests there you know one 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 side will say that there are hardly any people and there another will exaggerate the number of people there and the truth lies somewhere in the middle but yeah there were a lot of there were a lot of people there Lindsay Tanner who was there is actually from Melbourne so people people kind of came from all over the shop and okay yeah 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 it was it was quite something and the really kind of interesting thing about it is that um, well, we, we dug up the ASIO file on, um, on what happened. ASIO, of course, stands for the Australian Secret Intelligence Organisation. 
um, and based on the documents, um, ASIO uh, assessed that the risk was low because uh, students were on holiday. Ah, oh, that's what it was, yes. Yeah, students were on holiday, so they're like, you know, yeah. she'll be right. Um, you'll yeah. be right, Malcolm. Melbourne's own. Triple R. How did you get the animation? I mean, did did you employ an animator to do it? Yeah, um, a, a chap by the name of uh, Dane Scotcher did the uh, animation. Very talented mo- motion graphics, um, motion design uh, uh, artist practitioner is perhaps what I should call him. Um, he actually lives up in uh, Lennox Head at the moment, but he's he was. I'm just so lucky to to have had talented people around me, to be honest, yeah, to help bring this into like fruition. You, yeah. It sounds like you did. So what we had was we had um, like the students who were a particular mm. icon and yeah. then we had the police, which yes. had a particular icon, yeah. and then we had our man, Malcolm Fraser, yes. <laughs> and yeah. his minders. Correct. So it was really easy to trace the movements. and, uh, and Yeah. Well, what, yeah. what we did is we unearthed the, some, um, what do we do, the plans of the actual building from the university. City archives. And, and we could actually, that building is still standing? It's still standing, but since the film was shot, that building has been renovated oh. quite significantly. Well, I mean, probably good, but, you know, so we can't go back and trace the steps. Yeah. Yeah. I always kind of, yeah, it made me feel a bit sad when it was renovated. <laughs> a yeah. bit. Yeah. Oh. But we got in there and filmed before, before that happened. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's there's much more to the documentary, as you've said, than just, you know, recounting the events mm. of the day, because you go and find a lot of the people involved in the protest. You mentioned mm. Lindsay Tanner. There were a number of others. Yes. And you said you wanted to find out, you know, where their lives had gone. I did. What did you discover? Yeah, it was it was a bit of a spectrum, actually. But on the whole, you know... Their values, you know, they changed. I mean, everyone changes, right? Yeah. You know, especially yeah. since you were, um, you know, from from your 20s to your 50s or 60s, of course you're going to change. Um, and then there's, you know, there's that saying, if you're not a communist when you're 20, uh, you haven't got a heart. And if you're still a communist in your 30s, you haven't got a head. And that was kind of the, <laughs> I guess that was the, that was the thing that I, I perhaps wanted to test. Like, were these people still communists and anarchists and... And whatnot, um, and or, you know, or Maoists, or Maoists, <laughs> yeah. And you know, for the most part, part they had moderated their views, but I, I think their their values, their core values, were mm-hmm. still kind of there. Yeah, um, and, and besides Lindsay Turner, like who else did you? Yeah. So um, there's a two of the people involved uh, went on to become union leaders so Brian Boyd and Jeannie Ray Brian Boyd was the secretary of trades hall council and Jeannie Ray the head of the NTEU uh, Dick Ross was the mayor of St Kilda um, who else was there John Fain makes a brief appearance yes i saw that um, and a chap uh, a chap called Bill Mountford who went on to become a senior public servant and consultant and economist you know he was a yeah. former communist and we actually see him and his mate um, Bruin open their ASIO files for the first time yes. uh, which is which is a hoot mm. yeah yeah i do remember that being particularly funny yeah, <laughs> yeah. so i mean I'm just coming back. I, I wonder, were there any like gifts, any big surprises as you were making that film? Were there any big surprises? Um, I think that perhaps what surprised me most was the contrast between 
the Malcolm Fraser that you see on camera, who's very stern, somewhat aristocratic, and the Malcolm Fraser when the cameras were off, like it was really quite a stark contrast. I mean, I was surprised to find out the guy could actually be really personable and, yeah. you know, and actually but funny. I'm curious, how did you pitch it to him to get him to, to do the interview? <sighs> yeah, I mean, well, I, fortuitously I was working with a, a um, what was it, a startup, a, a kind of digital democracy startup called Our Say, and he was kind of involved with that. Um, so I had a connection there and I kind of was in his office prepping him for an event and I kind of dropped this in and um, he uh, he seemed interested. But he kind of changed his mind um, and uh, so I had to spend the next kind of two years chasing him really. He kept me up at night. I, I oh, so, so you so much wanted that interview. I, I wanted it and I need. I, I felt as though I needed that interview f- to, to make my doco. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he did uh, dispel a number of myths around uh, what happened on the day. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, mm. Now, no, I mean, is it a spoiler to say anything about the other interviews with Fraser? Uh, what do you mean exactly? Well, it wasn't just you who got to... Oh, yes. Well, um, <laughs> I don't know. Is it a spoiler? I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, but I, I thought... Oh. oh, yeah. Maybe just... Okay, maybe we leave that. Maybe we would just leave that in case it is a spoiler. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I mean, there was something very familiar also, you know, just looking back at, you know, some of the footage of, mm. of Fraser chatting while the students were banging, mm. well, not chatting and giving his talk while the students were banging at the door. And uh, something very familiar about the way he said, well, you know, with the protests, it's, the pro- it's all the militant unions mm. who have gotten on to this. It's not, the, you know, those lovely university students <laughs> yeah. wouldn't do it, to which the audience uh, clapped. It was those militant unions. And I just love the ABC journalists that you filmed or well, that you showed footage of who actually called all the unions and said, are you out of this yeah. protest today? Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it, there is like there's this whole thing about you know I've been to the odd protest when I was at university and even you know later in life, the thing that kind of really uh, is you know, can be somewhat disappointing is that the way you know that there might be a contingent within uh, a large protest that is you know causing a bit of strife, mm-hmm. and uh, the media tends to uh, home in on those people. Mm-hmm. And everyone kind of gets tarred with that brush, which I think is a real, real shame. Um, mm. But it happens a lot. And we are now seeing certainly environmentalists being, um, I suppose, depicted, represented or, you know, cast in certain ways in mm. the media. And so that, that's why it struck me as being so familiar, the, the mm. way... Uh, people who protest to people who are concerned about genuinely genuinely important things in our right. society mm. uh, get labels put on them mm. yeah uh, it is it is concerning and I think it's a really interesting moment in Australian politics actually and you know um, there's work to be done and, and, <laughs> and political action to take, I think. Yes. So I'm just wondering, now, you know, you've, you've made the film. It's about to be launched. Mm. I mean, this must be so exciting, your first stocko. And uh, um, I just, what are some of the messages coming out of it for all of us now, do you think? I think that this is a study of political conflict, actually. Um, and, you know, 
towards the end of the film, like what we see is like the fact there's the fact that these mortal enemies of the 1970s find out that you know they have somewhat more in common than they realized back then i think what's i think what's really interesting about political conflict and maybe conflict in general is that you know in the heat of battle we kind of other our opposition and that prevents us from understanding them really where they're coming from they just seem unreasonable and irrational but most of the time people have their reasons and like call me idealistic but I think most people are good people they just have a different perspective they've been on a different journey Um, and I think in the heat of battle it's really hard for us to empathize with that but what happens when when times passed you know, like decades have passed now, you kind of look back on it with clear eyes and um, it's only then that you, you really kind of get to understand what was going on and who those people were. You know, now that the everything's kind of simmered down a bit, mm-hmm. you, can, you can look at it clearly and go, well, who were these people actually, you know? Yeah, yeah, and also, yeah, in terms of the politics of the mm-hmm. day and, and also in knowing our history. Yeah, yeah. And knowing, you know, that these things were done, these things happened. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us again about, you know, when the documentary is going to be shown and you must be so excited. Well, I'd be excited if I wasn't so exhausted. You have no idea. <laughs> this, it's just the last couple of weeks I haven't had a lot of sleep, to be honest with you. I know. I, I, can, I understand that the process of making a film yeah. is pretty intense and then bringing it all together at the end. Just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but look, sitting here now, I'm getting pretty excited. Oh, good. I'm on, I'm on, I'm on <laughs> radio <laughs> promoting my film. So, look, it's, it's showing at the Capitol on the 11th of November, Capitol in uh, Swan Street, Melbourne, uh, 3.30 uh, PM for a four o'clock screening. Uh, tickets you can get them from howtocapturea.pm.com. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know we'll have screenings beyond that for future screenings. Uh, jump on the website, sign up to our mailing list, and you'll get notified as soon as um, as soon as uh, they're announced. Yeah. Great. So Gary Newman, thank you so much for coming into Triple R this morning. It's been I found the film absolutely fascinating. As the person who wasn't in Australia, mm. you know, when all of these events happened, and uh, I learned a lot. And uh, I thought it's, you presented it really well. So congratulations. And on the interviews, I mean, to get those interviews, I mean, <laughs> really a challenge. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, lovely to have you here. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.